This morning, the title is The Lord Our Righteousness. The text is Jeremiah 23, 1 through 6. Let's read it. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherd who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doing, says the Lord. But... I will gather the remnant of the flock out of all countries where I have driven them. I will bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. A little background from last week before we dive into this week. In the previous chapter, last week we talked about the seed of Jeconiah was rejected and... uh, forever sitting on the throne of David. It was a blood curse. Uh, The kings of Judah had become so corrupt that God had cut off the royal line of kings that had come from David through Solomon. In the first few verses of this chapter, God lists his indictment against the kings who were called shepherds. So in verses one and two, when it says shepherds, he's really referring to the kings and those in leadership who were responsible for bringing the country to such a state of decay. But we have a problem here in that God made David uh, a covenant that he said would be forever. And I want to show you that promise. And you need to turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. So let me give, give you a moment to get there. Again, if you don't have a Bible, there's one, should be one in front of you. And while you're turning, let me just give you the setting here of Second uh, Samuel 7. David's feeling a little guilty. He lives in this beautiful cedar house, and um, he looks at the Ark of the Covenant that's in this tent. It's bothering his conscience. He tells Nathan the prophet about it. He says, I don't feel right about this. I'm living in this beautiful place and uh, the creator of the universe is dwelling behind tents. And uh, Nathan picked up on what he was talking about. So in verse three, Nathan says, "Uh, go for it, David. Do all that's in your heart for the Lord is with you. I know the Lord is with you. Just go for it, do it. So as Nathan is walking home, the Lord tapped him on the shoulder and he says, "Uh, Nathan, um, since when did I ever ask anybody to build me a house? I have not asked anybody to do that since I delivered them out of the land of Egypt. And uh, you spoke out of turn. You didn't talk to me about this one. And so now what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to go back and talk to David. You can tell him he's got good news and bad news. And the bad news is that he cannot build me a house. The fact of the matter is he has too much blood on his hands as a warrior 
and uh, I'm going to commission his son eventually for that task, but he won't be able to do it. But let's pick it up in verse 12. Instead, I'm going to build a house for you, David. So there's bad news and good news. And the good news for David is when your fathers are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. If he commits iniquity, I'll chastise him with the rods of men, with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne will be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now, one of David's descendants has a curse placed upon the bloodline. His name is Jeconiah, sometimes referred to as Keniah. And um, as a result of the curse, nobody from that line will ever be able to sit on the throne of David. We have a problem. But the Lord found a way around the very curse that he placed on Jeconiah. God Christ to the whole earth here to be his witness. No descendant of Jeconiah will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. This is one of the reasons that Joseph could not have been the father of Jesus. Joseph was of the line of Jeconiah. And God said, no child of that line will sit on the throne of David. Does this mean the throne of David would be vacant from then on? Now the remarkable thing is that there are two genealogies of Jesus Christ. And this is the reason um, how the Lord worked around it. There's two genealogies. One is in Matthew chapter 1. And the one in Matthew chapter 1 leads through Joseph. It comes from David, through Solomon, through Jeconiah, and then on to Joseph. Joseph's line gave to Jesus the legal title to the throne, but Joseph was not the father of Jesus. Jesus is not a descendant of that line. The second genealogy in Luke 3 is the genealogy of Mary, and it does not go through Solomon, but through another one of David's sons whose name was Nathan, not the prophet, but one of his sons. There is no curse and no judgment on that line. The Lord Jesus Christ was virgin born. He came through Mary's line. That is where we got the blood title, the throne, through the the throne of David. I find this to be one of the most remarkable um, uh, occurrences uh, in the scriptures, how the Lord took that and worked around that that curse. Verses 1 and 2, if you go back to Jeremiah, are the same. They're indictments against the leadership. The shepherds were held responsible for the condition of the sheep. Uh, These kings were ruling for the benefit of their own welfare. They really didn't care for the people. We would say today they were fleecing the flock rather than feeding the flock. They were telling the people everything they wanted to hear. 
they had their own prophets that they would listen to. And these prophets were false prophets. I'll talk a little bit more about them in just a little bit. But clearly, everybody loved the false prophets. They hated Jeremiah. I've repeated this over and over. Jeremiah had one message uh, from the time that he was called. It was the true message from God himself, and that is judgment is imminent. It's coming from a king of Babylon, namely Nebuchadnezzar. And um, he's, that was Jeremiah's message, and nobody liked it. And, um, but they loved what the false prophets were speaking to them. So instead of feeding the people and telling them the truth, what was coming down, um, they didn't. As a matter of fact, uh, what they were doing, if you look at chapter 23, verses 25 to 28, this is sort of how it went. This is how the false prophets or false teachers would be speaking to the people. Verse 25 says, I have heard what the prophets who said, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I've dreamed a dream. I've dreamed a dream. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of deceit out of their own heart, who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. So these prophets were going around, I've dreamed a dream, don't worry about a thing, judgment's not gonna come, everything's gonna be fine. How do you know? I dreamed a dream. Now I like this. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell his dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. Well, let's make the, the contrast right here now. There were those who were dreaming the dream. They were, it was coming from their own heads, maybe making it up as it goes, but it was not from the Lord. The Lord says clearly, they're lying, and it's not mine. And then he says, but let he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. Now we're talking about Jeremiah. Jeremiah's word for the people was, don't even think about fighting against Nebuchadnezzar. Capitulate, and you'll live. That's the word of the Lord. And then it says this. This is one of the great verses in the Bible. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces? Here's the false prophets with the chaff. Nothing to it. It's like cotton candy. No substance. Nothing there. Sweet even. Sweet to the taste. But nothing there. Compared to what? The wheat. The wheat would be the word of God. What is the wheat to the chaff? The chaff is nothing, but the word of God is everything. Even if it's an unpopular message, Jeremiah was faithful, and um, the reason that we know that Jeremiah's word was true can be easily tested. If you turn a chapter to page chapter 25, which is just a chapter away, and you look at verses 11 and 12, it says, And the whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And then when it comes to pass, when 70 years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. Well, either it's true or it's not. And with the benefit of history, 
I think of Daniel 9, verse 1. Daniel was one of the first to go when Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem. uh, Jerusalem fell in three different attacks. The first attack, they came in, and they started to skim the cream of the crop. And Daniel was part of that first. They They wanted the intellectuals, those with money, those who would be a benefit in the empire of Babylon. So Daniel went, about 17 years old. Now he's been in Babylon for the whole 70 years. So in Daniel 9, verse 1, he says, I understood by reading the prophet Jeremiah that 70 years are determined upon my people. Daniel looked at his watch. (laughs) 70 years are up, Lord. And um, it's time to go home. Now what? And we know that Jeremiah's was the wheat. It was true. Well, how do we know it's true? Because it's a fact of history. It was foretold before it happened, and then it happened, therefore, it is the word of God. Good place for an amen. What are the other guys? Cotton candy guys, the chaff guys. And they were telling people exactly what they wanted to hear, but it was not the truth. It was deceitful lies. They were making it up as they went, and the Lord called them out on it ahead of time. Let's bring it up to current events. Today, many have left the wheat, the word of God, for the chaff. And I'm referring to now, as, as I think um, what has happened in my lifetime and what I've seen, you know, growing up as a kid, there was a, a quarter hardware store and there was a corner grocery store and um, everything closed down on Sunday. All the ch- buildings were shut up. Everybody went to church even if it was just a social thing, at least they went. And uh, what has changed? Well, the mom and pop businesses have closed up, and instead of having many mom and pops, we got one big Walmart. And we've had a lot of merging over the years. Another merger in the airline industry uh, just within the last week. And um, my point is that there's something that used to be normal in America. Uh, that men and women had their own places of employment. They were the owners. They were the managers. You know, but now they're working out at um, places like Walmart. I'm not trying to slam Walmart. I'm just pointing out an observation how our culture has changed. Now, it has changed also in the church in the same way. For this one, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 13 in the New Testament. All of... These are parables, and the one that I'm interested in is only two verses long. It's the parable of the mustard seed, and I'm going to put a picture up on the screen that shows you what a mustard seed plant grows into. This is what it looks like, and when we read it, it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Well, what is the kingdom of heaven? Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is here when he first made that declaration. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is the one who's going to establish the kingdom of heaven, and he's going to go about it by using, he uses the church, and um, we're called living stones that he's been building on for the last 2,000 years. So the kingdom of heaven, the building process, in this case of the church, is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, 
which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. What we have here is something that is not natural. It's not true. Mustard seeds are not supposed to grow into big trees, and what's with this deal of mentioning that there's birds that nest in these branches? There is a big fancy theological word that's called expositional constancy. And basically when you're studying the parables, expositional constancy um, is best explained this way. If you go to the parable of the sower, chapter 13, verse 4, we know that a sower went out to sow seed. And uh, verse 4 says, some fell by the wayside and the birds came and devoured them. Jesus explains the whole parable but doesn't give the interpretation until you get to verse 18 where he says, now I'm going to explain the parable to you. He said the seed um, is is the word of God and they don't understand it. Then the wicked one comes and snatches away that was sown in his heart. All right, now we have uh, an interpretation First of all, the seed is the word of God. We all got that one down. But the birds, we find out in the interpretation, is actually the wicked one. So expositional constancy is basically this. There is no explanation of what a bird is in the parable of the mustard seed. Where expositional constancy kicks in as if um, the birds are an example of of the evil one in one parable, expositional constancy means it's the same in another parable. So if I would read it with that in mind, and we're talking about the building of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is like what? Well, it's, it's something that isn't natural. It, when it grows, and especially in the days in which we live, mustard seeds are supposed to turn out like that. This one turned out to a tree. What is that? That's not natural. But then it adds a detail that there's birds in this monstrosity. So something that was never intended to be actually evolved and actually happened. As in Jeremiah's time, there were many, the majority, where the numbers were, they were all false prophets. But the people loved it. And the people gravitated towards um, the bigger and the, and the better. And what I see happening today is the many churches, um, it's, it's amazing what's happened. I went online and I looked at a, a George Barnett poll. What's happened to the church is what's happened to many mom and pop um, businesses you know that over 4,000 churches closed in America last year? Between 1,500 and 1,700 pastors leave the ministry every month. And the question that I ask is why? Well, for the same reason that I see it happening in a business world, in the church world, you have the Jeremiah's, you have the wheat. But um, as we, we see, that's not necessarily what Um, people want 
these days. They end up in mega churches where all they really have to do is, you know, just sort of show up. And um, they, they put on a very, very slick presentation. Now, I did a little research. I had Mayor look up the 100 largest churches. And I thought, well, I'm not going to have time for that. <laughs> I said, let's cut it down to 50. And so I went through those 50, and I said, don't have time for that. <laughs> so I'm only, I only picked out a couple to give you a, a flavor of what I think um, the Lord is talking about here, where in Jeremiah's time, he was in the minority, but he was faithful with a very unpopular message. Is everybody with me? But on the other hand, you had the false teachers and the false prophets making it up as they go, dreams as the dreams, the chaff. What is the wheat to the chaff? But everybody went along with it. Jeremiah was alone. But everybody else went along with, with, the, with um, the majority of the false prophets. Now, I, I pick out three that I think will make my point and my concern uh, for what's happened in the church in the last days. The largest church is in Lakewood, Houston. Uh, the, the pastor is Joel Olstein. And, um, you know, to say he's a false teacher, I wouldn't say that. I would say he's a teacher that doesn't teach the whole counsel of God. And it's not what's, it's, it's, it's what he doesn't say that bothers me because he doesn't present an entire gospel. But what he does present is the things that are, it's not so much about Jesus as it is about you. Every one of his books either has you or I in the title. The one that I like to quote is your best life now. You can have your best life now. I don't think Jeremiah read that book. (laughs) Can you see Jeremiah reading Joel Olstein's Your Best Life Now? (laughs) You know, it ain't happening. Matter of fact, it says all those who really live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer. It's going to be tough. But you won't be compromising. I mean, Larry King called him on the carpet. And he's, he's just a Jewish man from New York. He's not a Christian. And he says, you know, the word's out, Joel, that you, you don't talk about sin or repentance. Isn't that a part of being a, being a Bible and being a Bible-building Christian? Do you know that he completely evaded the question? And what, he, what, he sweet-talked himself with that great, big, beautiful smile of his and walked right around it. It's not so much false teaching, but it's definitely not the whole counsel of God. And I would um, mark that off. And you know, it's the largest church in the country. People love it. Next one in our area here would be Bill Hybels, Willow Creek. Well, the whole, he was a youth leader, and he wanted, a, he wanted to have a successful church. So he got a hold of Peter Drucker, um, not a Christian. Um, he's a guru to the CEOs in the business world of America, and he wanted, his, he wanted in to the mega churches. And Rick Warren and Bill Hybels are both disciples of Peter Drucker. And he told the guys, he says, if you follow this blueprint, you will have a mega church. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. And guess what? They have one. And it's influenced their leadership conference is, is shown around the world today. And it's all about raising up leaders. And I just thought about that for a second. Raising up leaders. 
And I'm wondering, where in the Bible have I ever read that? And I realized I never had. <laughs> and the speakers that they bring in, 90% of them aren't even Christians. They're successful business leaders that are going to be teaching born-again Christians how to lead. Well, Jesus said, if you want to learn how to lead, you need to be the least, and you need to be servants. You don't need to have technical, worldly. Matter of fact, we're told just the opposite. If the world loves you, I'm not of the world. I don't do things in a worldly way. The Lord says he does it the biblical way. And so uh, Bill Hybels' Willow Creek is a tremendously successful It's the epitome of the seeker-sensitive church where they're very careful not to offend anybody. Um, They crossed the line as far as I was concerned. It prompted me to write to all 82 um, Willow Creek members that associate with Willow Creek in the state of Wisconsin. There's 82 of them. And I called them out because they were allowing gay worship people to be on their worship teams. And then the same guy showing up down in Atlanta next week with a sign saying, uh, we as a church apologize to the gay and lesbian community. And it went viral. And um, I don't think it's changed too many because I don't think a lot of people in these seeker-sensitive churches really care. They're there. They're, they're um, um, part of the, the programs that are set up. But what is the weight to the chaff? What is the wheat to the chaff? Now, the one on the West Coast, also a model, is called America's Pastor, Rick Warren, of Saddleback. He wrote, of course, a purpose-driven life. Again, your purpose for you and the purpose-driven church for 40 days of purpose. Versus what? Versus being spirit-led. And the Lord said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And uh, we know his word, and his word directs us. I was talking to Dave Hawking one time. Him and his wife went and just sat and watched people go into church, thousands of them. And he said they had one observation. He didn't see anybody with a Bible. Didn't see anybody going into the church with a Bible. And I thought, huh, what an interesting observation. By the way, Dave will be with us for our prophecy conference. So... The parable of the mustard seed. Here we have the kingdom of heaven, and it grows into something unnatural. I think the megachurches are unnatural. I don't think they're big because a lot of people are one to Christ in these churches. I think they steal from the mom and pop churches that have been faithful for many, many years, but they just can't hold up to the glip, so the glamour and the slickness and the smoothness of the production that's put on. But to do what you guys are doing this morning, sitting down and going chapter by chapter through Jeremiah. Jeremiah is not too fun. (laughs) Jeremiah is not too encouraging. What's the message? Judgment. Any hope? None. Really? Well, the thing is, he was true to what God told him to do. And he was the wheat. Did it happen? Yeah. Back to history. What happened to the false prophets? They're going to stand before the Lord someday with their cotton candy dreams and visions and leading people astray. Jesus said, any one of, I think of these college professors, and if you're a college professor messing with, with um, kids that are coming into university, listen up. Because Jesus said it'd be better 
if a millstone were put around your neck and you were drowned in the deepest part of the sea rather than to stand before me on judgment day if you've offended one of my little ones. You're one of his little ones. And if you undermine that faith, you know, Paul was mentioning that we need help uh, with our kids. Do it. Uh, what The seeds that you plant in them are going to be challenged, and you, you know as well as I do. I was talking to a person in the church last week who happens to be a teacher in the school system. And um, it's not in a high school level, but he says, geez, I just don't know how much longer I can be a teacher. And he said, I certainly couldn't do it these days if I was in the high school level. Now, please don't write me letters if you're a, a, a teacher and you're trying to be a light and you're trying to fight uh, where you are. I commend you, so don't take me wrong. But um, everything that I'm saying, you know, is factual. That's happening today. And what has happened is that the church has turned into something, with this parable, that is not natural. And the thing about the birds entering in, and um, that to me is a false doctrine, um, like ordaining women or, 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 or um, having uh, people from the pulpit that actually live the gay lesbian lifestyle. Do you know how politically incorrect I am right now? How totally homophobic, left-wing radical. Go ahead and fill in the blank. And they got a lot of, a lot of names to describe me. And um, all I can think of is Jesus said if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. And they did not like what Jesus had to say. But he spoke, and he did not compromise. And what I see for these churches to become what they are, you have to compromise. Otherwise, you're going to offend somebody, and you're going to get up and walk out. Don't want to do that. So I think I've made the point. The church, um, the stats by the Barna poll speak for themselves. It's not a Christian organization but I don't doubt their stats at 4,000 churches close. And a lot of these guys, I think, are, are, are faithful men in the pulpit, and they're just teaching the word of God, but it's just not flashy enough. And as a result, they've been, they're not new converts, but they're, they're being drawn away. And I think it's a sad thing to see. Paul actually warned about it to the church of Ephesus, about being tossed here and there. He says, Don't be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of man and the cunning and craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. There are those that are out there that are in it for themselves and to um, fleece the sheep rather than feed the sheep. Now, Peter was told by the Lord one simple thing, the last words to Peter. Peter, do you love me? Sure do, Lord. He says, then I want you to feed my sheep. Any simpler than that? If you love Jesus, he said, Peter, then I just want you to feed my sheep. And the prophecy in Jeremiah says that the Lord is going to give them shepherds, and they are going to care for the flock, and they are going to feed the sheep. I, I can go to men's prayer on Saturday morning, and I can call everybody by their first name as we go around the table. And um, I know them. And I know what they're going through. I know what we're praying for. I know who they're praying for. And um, I don't think the, the mega church pastor can do that. I don't think he runs a church more like a CEO than a, a pastor. 
Pastors are supposed to be pastors who know their sheep so that their sheep can be tended to. He not only told them to feed the sheep, Peter, but tend to them. And that's um, the responsibility of the pastor. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul, in warning Timothy about what was to come, he doesn't suggest to him, but he charges him. Now, it's one thing to make a suggestion, but Paul is charging Timothy in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and at his kingdom. Preach the word, all of it. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Why? For the time is going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up teachers for themselves who write books entitled My Best Life Now. Oh, that's not there. I thought I saw that there for a minute. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. We're going to switch gears and go back to Jeremiah and look at the prophecy. Just as there were false prophets in Jeremiah's day that he had to contend with, the Lord told him, you don't dare be afraid of their face. You don't dare back down, Jeremiah. You speak the words that I put on your tongue. But now we switch, and we have this one little word in verse 3, but. And with the but, all of a sudden there's a light at the end of the tunnel, because it says it's not always going to be this way. Because I have a remnant, and I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be in dismay, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Now the prophecy. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. This is a prophecy given in Jeremiah 23. His name will be called the Lord, our righteousness, which in the Hebrew is Jehovah Tesigtenu. This is a prophecy of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, his name is called Jehovah Tesigtenu. The name Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. Uh, Jehovah, or Yahweh, is the name of the uh, eternal personal God of the Old Testament. But here, um, there's many names that we could give for Jesus. He's our peace, um, Jehovah Shalom, and it goes on and on and on. New Testament I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life, I am the door, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the word of God in the book of Revelation. And he has many different titles. But here, he's called the Lord, our righteousness. In other words, he has become our righteousness. Now, I quote this scripture often, but it is so important. And gang, if you can get this down, this really will, when, you know, when the Bible says you'll know the truth, it'll set you free. If you get what's coming down 
the pipe right now, it'll, it'll change your whole idea of what that verse means. You'll know the truth, and that truth is going to set you free. Well, here's the truth, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He took my sin and gave me his righteousness. That's why Jeremiah calls him Jehovah Tisigtenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Philippians, please, chapter three. I'll give you a moment to get there. The Lord, our righteousness. Paul, in writing, give you a little bit of background of um, Paul. He's got quite a track record of accomplishments in defending the law. He says concerning the law, he was blameless. He studied under Gamaliel, the teacher of the Pharisees during that time. So to say he was educated um, by the best as far as the law was concerned, he was. And, um, but in verse seven, concerning the law and his way of keeping the law is what they determined made them righteous, which of course implied doing good works. And um, he says concerning the law, he was blameless, holy smokes. But all of that that he had gained and his notoriety in verse seven, uh, he just says, but what things were gained to me, he's talking about his Judaism. Of these things I've counted loss for Christ. But indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, so much for his best life now, and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. I've given all my religion away. Anything that has to do with works. He realized, and he would say later, let me finish reading it, and being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Gang, if you can get this, it'll set you free. You see, your salvation has nothing to do with you. The great exchange, what happened? Either you keep all of the law, and he says if you break it in one area, you're guilty of it all. So, anybody here ever live a perfect life? Just raise your hand. I want to see one. I haven't seen one yet. I'd like to meet the perfect person. I'll meet him someday. But what he took was my sin, but he became my righteousness. And this is what Paul is saying here, is you can't have it both ways. One of the reasons I have a problem with Roman Catholicism is they say I'm anathema if I would dare say that you can go to heaven apart from having good works too. Oh yes, believe in Jesus, and that part of it is true, that Jesus died on the cross. Is that true? That's true. And then they also say that you also have to have good works. And according to your good works will determine how much time you have to spend in purgatory. You know what I call that? Leaven. Because it's not true. And a little leaven does what? Leavens a whole lump. 
So people are afraid to speak out against it and say, yeah, but you're just being nitpicky now. No, I'm not. I'm simply trying to say what Paul said right here. My law, I've thrown it all away. Loss. Why? So I can gain the excellency of knowledge of Christ. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do that I might attain the righteousness that I can only get as a free gift. I have nothing to do with it. The disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, what can we do to do the works of God? And Jesus looked at him and said, believe on him who the Father has sent. Huh? That's it? Yeah, that's it. Because if I'm added to the equation in any way, I will mess it up. Amen there? Yeah, I can't be a part of the equation. Either it is all God's grace, the finished work to die, it is finished, or I actually have a part of it. Now, because I am born again, I will do good works. I understand the book of James. Don't misunderstand the book of James. James talks about good works. And the natural result of being saved and having your sins forgiven is I gotta tell somebody, you know, this is too good to be true. I know too many people are screwed up and messed up and they're uh, suicidal and they're having all these things because they don't feel worthy. Well, guess what? That's absolutely true. You are not worthy. You're worthy of the judgment that Jesus went through. And that's, that's the fact and truth of the matter. But here's the good news. Hey, I'm just a beggar who's fallen the bread. And all I want to do is pass it on. And that's the best we can do, is proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not adding to it, not taking away from it, not being afraid to say, that's not in the Bible. Works are, is not a part of salvation, just the opposite. The writer of most of the New Testament books says, I've counted out all that religious stuff, loss, so that I could gain my freedom. So gang, when it says you'll know the truth and it'll set you free, I'm as free as a bird. And I can stand before God with a clear conscience. And my Bible says, come boldly. If I had anything to do with my salvation, no way I could come boldly. But I can because of Jesus. And because of that, um, he sets the captives free. In closing this up this morning, uh, Paul speaks of the righteousness that he had sought to attain through the works of the law and how that he gladly exchanged that for the true righteousness that he had discovered through Jesus Christ. We have the choice this morning of trying to stand before God clothed in our own righteousness, or we can stand before him in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imputed to us simply through our faith in Jesus Christ. As for me and my house, I depend upon my faith in Jesus Christ for my righteousness and my standing before God. And I had, I had them sing this song this morning because I, I want to close with one of the verses. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lane on Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Lord, as we go through the dark book of Jeremiah, we thank you for this bright light of this great promise where you said the Messiah will come, the Lord our righteousness, Jehovah Desigtenu. And Lord, with the great exchange, he took our sin 
And he imparted to us his grace and his love and his mercy, but most of all, righteous before you. And uh, we are so grateful, Lord. I pray you'd stir our hearts that we don't keep this wonderful treasure hidden under a bushel basket, but our lights would shine when we see people that aren't free. In Jesus' name, amen.